The preaching of God's Word is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 25 through 33. Just by way of context, you'll remember that what set off this treatment is that the men, his disciples, were saying, look at the manner of buildings and the temple in particular. Christ then instructed them in the coming desolation of Jerusalem. But as is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, there was a further question that, gave, uh, that was brought up by the apostles. Tell us, when shall these things come? As well as the sign of your coming, the last day. And so intermixed and so on throughout this is both a word about the destruction of Jerusalem, which then serves as a forewarning of the last and great judgment to come, as we'll see. Luke 21, 25-33. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. But then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. He spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Though we'll consider these verses, notice that the following verses appeal and exhort, very similar to what Christ's disciple Peter did as he reminds of the last day and then exhorts Christians unto godliness. Well, the text before us is a brilliant example of Christ's great insight, understanding, and skill in handling the teaching of truth. All before us can and does refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. There is what is known as apocalyptic language, which is common to the Old Testament as well as to the New. Matthew 24 being the parallel has even more such of a record of His words, which are filled with the same. And as you read, for instance, and are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that such language as God coming um, is often used even of foreigners coming to bring judgment upon various cities and even Israel. So you read through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and you'll find language similar to this. God is coming. And who is He using? Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked nation, to afflict and destroy and thus to discipline and correct, which of course is likewise what took place at the destruction of Jerusalem. And likewise, there are new for your own study, can take time. And you can see that surrounding the years preceding the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, 
there were great things done, both in the natural phenomenon of the earth, but also in wars and so on, that were all so many testimonies that the destruction of Jerusalem was nigh at hand. And so all of this is able to, and indeed all of this then, makes sense why Christ says, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. He's not talking about the last day is going to come before this uh, generation is finished. But rather, he's saying as the primary focus all goes back to what he's talked about with the temple being torn down. And likewise, as we considered last time, Jerusalem trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. This has this initial focus upon those things. And yet embedded in this, as is even clearer in Matthew's Gospel, Christ is using this as a springboard to cause us to think of the last day. In other words, there are parallels between the destruction of Jerusalem, the signs preceding the work done, and what will take place on the last day. And so Christ is directing not only His present hearers, but all such hearers of His recorded Word to think well upon these various truths. And so as He takes these things up, it causes us to realize that most in our present day treat every day that they live as it fades from day into night, and in night and today, as if that's the normal and everlasting expectation. And speak this way, you know, people will say, when I'm long gone, when I'm dead and buried, and hundreds of years have passed, you know, things will continue going as they are. Peter acknowledged this, that the scoffers uh, that were coming would say, where is the sign of His coming? For all things continue since the beginning of the world, as they do this day, though the Father's have perished. And isn't there something interesting that Peter uses that language? It's as if the mockers are saying, look, the generation passed and nothing has come of this last great day. Well, it's subtle, isn't it? The days pass on and every day seems to be like every other day. And so we make plans. And as we're younger, we think about birthdays and we think about vacations and trips. When we get older, we think about perhaps retirement and how we're going to serve the Lord in our retirement. And then we start to think about, you know, I'm getting to the point where though at any time I could die, it's certainly nearing more closely and more evidently. And so I need to prepare for that and set my house in order and prepare for those things. And yet it's as if we're just preparing for the ongoing continuation of the same sequence, generation after generation, and so on. And so we mark days on our calendar. And perhaps we become thoughtful and we write because uh, we think of generations to come and we write letters to our children and children's children and other things of this sort. But what's interesting is all of that is making a grand assumption that life as we know it, from birth to death, for every human is going to just continue on and on. Now the Christian knows better and will often insert various truths and assert them But our functional life largely assumes that the state of things as they are is the way that the state of things 
shall ever be. Is it helpful for us to realize that's what Jerusalem thought in and around the mid-30s when Christ is speaking, the early 30s A.D., and less than, fewer than, 40 years would pass and they would see foreign armies coming. They would see the signs uh, mounting up and they would then witness the leveling of the walls. They would witness the deplorable actions against the temple and they would witness the murder of, as we saw, over a hundred thousand, and or rather a million, a hundred thousand, and then the taking captive of an additional almost hundred thousand. So within a generation, what was thought to be impossible would transform Jerusalem and the lives of multitudes forever. Brethren, we have the remnant of that today. We can look and see Jerusalem still destroyed. It's no coincidence that the temple's not rebuilt. This is something that we see in the Scriptures. But what's interesting is that does little in its alarm and sounding volume to stir us up to think, therefore, the certainty of that last day is coming upon us. That's what Christ is getting at. He's helping us to consider that there is that last day that is to come. Notice the text itself. There are signs that will be seen in the moon and stars. The distress of the nations with perplexity. This is true. Surrounding the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. And the Scriptures play out that this will be true at the coming of Christ as well. And you'll notice that there is fear that overwhelms and comes. And is it not the case as we considered when the Jews shall be converted in a large proportion that that will cause a wandering And then, as we'll see, when Satan is again released, when once he's bound and held captive, and the flourishing of the gospel goes forth, as is recorded in Revelation, there will yet be a time when he's released and will wreak havoc upon the world, such that the world has not known. What will there be but terrors and men failing themselves? These are all things yet to come. And yet all of them, every single one, should be a blaring siren saying, this is not the end, but the end is near and coming. Christ is coming. Someone says, well, what if I don't live to see those days? Neither did these men see to see those final days. Neither did Peter's audience live to see that final day of which he spoke. And yet he said the truth is coming and should so stir us up now to live our lives multiplying, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the force of all that Christ is getting at. Notice as we'll get to, Lord willing, verse 36, Watch ye therefore and pray always. To what end? That you shall be able to stand before the Son of Man. That you would be able when that day comes, whether you've died and your body is now raised up, or whether you're alive and Christ comes and transforms you at that moment, that you would stand on that day and not be as those unbelievers who look to the mountains and cry out, fall on us, cover us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So Christ directs not only His then-present hearers to consider that coming day of destruction, but He directs both they, them, and us to consider 
as he says, the redemption that draws nigh, verse 28, and the coming of the kingdom as well. And so we wish to think of that great day of judgment that is to come, borrowing from, as Christ here does, the destruction of Jerusalem, but likewise considering more with greater focus that last and coming day. So consider then three things. Firstly, that this is a day forewarned. Secondly, that it is a day unmatched. And thirdly, that it is a day most certain. This coming judgment is a day forewarned, unmatched, and most certain. And you'll notice that those three things are true relatively to the destruction of Jerusalem, but preeminently of the coming judgment of the world. So firstly, a day forewarned. We've already touched on this in previous sermons through this book, in this chapter in particular, but the destruction of Jerusalem was forewarned. We saw that in the prophecy of Daniel. We can see that elsewhere as well. And we see it here. We ought not to miss this, that Christ is 20 plus years, uh, 30 plus years ahead of the destruction of Jerusalem. And there is this forewarning of the coming judgment that will come against. And as we noted in passing last time, it's striking that Christians actually at the first warning of an, uh, 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 an enemy uh, army coming against Jerusalem took heed to Christ's words and fled. Whereas unbelieving Jews largely remained at Jerusalem in its destruction and were destroyed. But we ought to see here that it is forewarned not, not only by the signs, not only by the words and so on of this particular destruction of Jerusalem, but the same is true of the great and last day. God's Word forewarns us from the beginning to the end that there is a day of judgment to come. This is something to settle deeply in your mind and in mine. That, as Paul says, every one of us shall stand to give an account for every deed done in the body we can consider how is that possible for the Christian, but we ought to remember though, as the Scriptures make clear, we will give an account for every deed, including then our sins by consequence, that for the Christian all will be covered by the blood of Christ so that shame will not be known by the Christian at that moment, but unending delight and joyous gladness to Christ who is the Savior. So think of this for a moment, Christian. What happens in your experience now when you are brought face to face with your sin and then God adds blessing to His Word which speaks of your sins forgiven for Christ's sake? Is it not the case that your heart is gladdened and you rejoice in Christ your Savior? How much more shall it be the case on the last day when the Christian has the most intimate and glorious display of Christ, though all of these sins shown, yet all of these sins shown to be answered, covered by the blood of Christ, forgiven, pardoned, and indeed, we will rejoice in Christ. How can it not be that it will be with joy unspeakable and full of glory? 
But let's not miss the fundamental point. Everyone is going to stand before Christ. And we aren't going to stand before Christ as a married couple with the support of husband or wife. You know, there's some trials that you and I face where having at least the comfort of another with us is some comfort. But every one of us individually must stand before. We're not going to stand with you know, a faithful pastor or Christian and somehow get in, as they used to say, by the coattails of another. But rather, each one of us must give an account before the Lord of these things. If you ever attend Presbytery after a general assembly, there is a part of that meeting which calls every commissioner to give an account for the way they voted. And the fundamental ask is, have you voted in such a way as in accordance with God's Word and the constitution of this church? They have to give an account for that. And so this is one way that Presbytery is actually overseeing its ministers. So for instance, you can entertain, it's not the case right now, but it has been in years gone past where things contrary to the teachings of Scripture and the constitution of our church have been brought up at general assemblies. So, for instance, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a work to corrupt the praise of God, to bring in man-made hymns. And people voted in support of that. Well, this is meant to say, if you voted in support of something contrary to the Scriptures, and thus contrary as well to the constitution of the church, you have to give an account and will be reprimanded by the presbytery. That's a solemn thing. It's difficult, isn't it, when we have experienced discipline cases in our church and there have been occasions where one has stood in the face of the congregation to receive that formal admonition, rebuke, and discipline. And there is for all of us a sense of earnestness and concern and solemnity and rarely is there a dry eye in such moments. And yet, this will not be in the court of a church. It will not be in the face of an ambassador. It will be before the King Himself. You and I have this. And how good that Christ forewarns us of it. It's not to be a surprise. As if it should take us unawares, as the Scriptures say. Now think of how we prepare for things. There's something that is coming and we prepare for it. There's a happy day coming, we prepare for it. A wedding day's marked, we get ready for it. We purchase this, we reserve that. We send out invitations and we think about what the day is going to be. We rehearse our words and so on. We're going to meet some uh, dignitary and we think about, you know, when I shake their hand, look them in the face and say this and don't stumble over my words and so on. Remember a very gracious minister asking, as doubtlessly he's asked many, What will you say to Christ when you see Him? Mark this down. Every one of you will see Him. Children, you will see Him. The oldest among us will see Him. Those who have embraced Christ by faith will see Him. Those who refuse Christ will see Him. And Christ warns you now so that you can prepare raises the question, is that what you're doing? 
Are you preparing? And oh, Christian, what a blessing it is that though it does cause us to see something of our sins, and as we noted earlier in, the God, in God's Word being read, there's shame that's felt by that. Does it not give us a sense of His mercy that He says, yet prepare, for this day will come. And how do we prepare and heed the warning? But go to Him who is the Savior, who says, come to Me. You see, the warning is a good thing. It's striking to read the various reports and testimonies that are coming out of those who experienced that tragedy in Maui. Those who said, you know, we saw a haze, but we just thought it was the dust of the wind. The wind was blowing so much. There was the tropical storm hurricane that was out there. And we just considered, you know, this was one of those uh, winds that are sort of in the season, stirring up the dust and so on, not realizing that literally in a handful of hours, that fire would sweep through and consume all of the houses that were in its path. There were those who saw this taking place, didn't realize the real source of it, and made assumptions because they did not understand the warning. Some speak of having experienced that and then getting a call. Thankfully, their phone worked. And then they fled. And it was as if traffic jams began. And others who were near the ocean had to go into the ocean for periods of hours because the judgment of fire had come as it were. Well, here's Christ coming to you now saying, there is a judgment coming. What a blessing it is that He does so. That He doesn't say, I'm not going to tell them. And unbeknownst to them, I'm going to bring this upheaval on the world as we know it and draw men to give an account for their sins. But instead, He appeals to us, warns us that we may prepare. Mark it down. This day has been without equivocation, without confusion, given to us in a merciful warning that we might prepare. Our own nation makes legendary the call of that messenger. The British are coming. We think of the signs that were planned and so on, and how then all of a sudden there's this readiness and preparedness that's in place. Well, the British were in that way the enemies of those colonies. Here is Christ who is coming saying, I am coming. And He does so to sober us. But He also does so in mercy to save us. That that day would be the welcoming of our hearts to Christ. Secondly, it's a day that will be unmatched. You get hints of this just thinking of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's history had seasons of tremendous upheaval. You can read that in the Babylonian captivity and other records in the Scriptures themselves. But this day for Jerusalem was to be a day that made those days of which Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations to seem desirable to what they would experience here. How much more the last day. Notice that Christ says in verse 26, men's hearts failing them for fear. 
and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. Think of what's coming for the unbeliever, but the thing of all of their hopes and comforts will be utterly destroyed. Striking, perhaps you've looked at this online, you see these pictures of literally millions of dollars of a house on the bank of the ocean in Maui. And you can see the before picture and the pool and you know the cars even on the driveway. And you can think about it. And you can research if you wish to. You know How much was that house for? And then the after picture. And it's almost unrecognizable. All of it has been turned to ash. Think of what Peter said in 2 Peter in chapter 3. He says the same thing about everything in this world. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens, notice that language, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. Can you imagine the terror that will grip men on that occasion? People think themselves so strong and proud, and then a lightning bolt crashes, thunder breaks, and they are shuddering with terror. What will it be for the tumult here described to waste the heavens above us? And... With a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. In one sense, this should bring a memory of something else in the Scripture. And at Sinai, when God descends, thunderings, lightnings, smoke and flame consuming, what's it announcing? It's not really the natural things that are the ultimate concern. It's that God has come. And you have to do with God. And what he's doing is he's wiping away every distraction that has distracted men and women and children from the creation of the world since the fall to the present day. And he's saying, look what you don't have and now look what you have to deal with. You must deal with God. It is to be terror for those who have so carelessly blasphemed His name who have laughed and mocked at desecrating the Sabbath day, who have looked upon His pure ordinances of worship and say those people are too concerned, who have thought about the way that we're called to honor our authorities and said, well, who cares about them? I'm only in it for me. Who have said, well, look at how many people are given to all sorts of immorality. Why can't I? Look at the supports I have. Look at the house I have. Look at the cars I have. Look at the status I have. Look how healthy my family is. And God on that day says, as He takes it all away, now you have none of it. And you must deal with a God that you've set aside and ignored. That should sober us. That should make you and me, whether believer or unbeliever, to have new sense of perspective on this world. To say, why would I spend a breath of my life to garner the things of this world if it's in any way garnered for mere passing vanity and not for the service and use of Christ? 
Because in the end, all of that is going to be swept aside. And all that's going to remain is God and His kingdom. That's why it will be terror to the unbeliever. It is a most searching testimony in the book of Revelation when it testifies in chapter 21 and verse 8. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There are most searching things that you can discover in this life. You can read books and you could even see videos of men who were with this bravado saying how strong they are to resist and people who are gangsters and just thinking most relevantly upcoming days in the cartel who have all of their bravado saying how strong they are and yet they get caught. And all of that bravado is wasted. They weep like children because of the pains inflicted upon their bodies, because of the torments they will face. And that by wicked men who in the end can only destroy the body. This is why Christ says in the Gospel account, don't fear man, don't fear Him who can destroy the body, but fear Him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell forever. He's calling us to think of that unmatched day. The terror that shall grip the world. And yet, as terrifying and unequaled as that day will be against the ungodly, think that it will be, realize and know that it will be equally unmatched in glory for the believer. Because as Christ says, look up, your redemption draweth nigh. For the Christian, these things are the harbingers and the runnings ahead of Christ saying, I'm coming. Do you remember what John said at the close of Revelation when Christ says, Behold, I come quickly. And John doesn't say, Time out, wait, I've got a lot more good living to do. Or time out, wait, you know, I'd like to have these pleasures you know, mounted up and increase a little bit more. He says, Even so, come. I want Christ. I want nothing less than Christ. And I can want nothing greater than Christ. And when Christ returns, I receive what my heart has longed for forever. This is what Job said in his afflictions. In my flesh, with mine own eyes, I will see Him. That's what the psalmist recounts as He'll be at the right hand of the Father in Christ and so on. All of these things are the expectation of the believer. It is the richest comfort to know. And so Christ says to His disciples, you know, you're saddened because I say I'm going away. Well, that's understandable, isn't it? But He says, if I go, I'm preparing a place for you. And if I'm doing that, I will come again that you may be with Me where I am. 
And so though in the nations and in the unbelieving there will be terrors, the believer looks at these things and says, that is the footstep of my Savior. He comes for me. He comes for us. So you can see, even looking again at those passages we just considered in Revelation 21, notice in verse 3, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. If you haven't read, or if you haven't read in some time, I encourage you to take up Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. As you read it, there are things in there about certain doctrinal statements that need to be sifted and considered, but no one can deny his and our brethren's love to Christ under the most excruciating of outward agonizing torment. And yet the constant refrain for all of the martyrs and sufferers in that season is the same refrain for the martyrs of the early church at the Reformation and between that time and martyrs today. They were living for Christ and they would gladly die for Christ because they knew that however dark and difficult and painful this life was, there is a life to come which knows no end. This is the comfort of the believer. You see it as well in Second Peter as we mentioned earlier. It's astounding how these are joined together again and again throughout the Scriptures. Second Peter and chapter 3. Notice at verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. What's the point? Everlasting joy and blessing is what is brought by Christ to the Christian. And so the unbeliever will experience that day with the utmost of terror, which we must say is only the beginning of their torment. But the believer will receive that as the utmost joy that Christ has come. Imagine for a moment that you were among those imprisoned in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And all that you've suffered and been tormented by, it's almost unimaginable for us were it not written and recorded. And then you hear the rumors and you see the evidence you know, these soldiers who have persecuted, they're packing things up and they're getting ready to leave. And there are whispers about the forces are coming that will bring deliverance. What's happening? Well, the enemy is fleeing because they know what they'll have to deal with. But those who are under the suffering of the enemy are inwardly rejoicing. What are they saying? 
Oh, God, bring that day to pass. Let it come sooner than later. Let it be that you uphold me, that I might enjoy that deliverance. How much more the comfort of the believer when in this life all of the agony, all of the misery, all of the sin, all of the temptation will be answered for by Christ, removed, us comforted, and our souls rejoicing forever. It will be a day unparalleled in history. And it is a day that every one of you will experience one way or the other. Well, thirdly, it is a day most certain. Christ says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. There is in this, and it's worthy to consider on its own, a testimony of the preservation of every word of Christ, which is why we assent and defend the statement as our confession does, that God preserves His Word. But the use of this is in a particular context. And the context is with reference to the certainty of that day that is to come. It's the thing which unbelievers reject, they mock, and they ridicule Christians ever to have believed. There are moving records of wicked men chastising Christians and saying, where is the sign of His coming? As Peter records, and as elsewhere is shared. But the Christian looks and says, who is it that says these words? Notice the intimate simplicity. My words. It's not the Apostle saying His words. It's Christ saying My words. The One who is the truth. The incarnate Son of God whose words cannot fail. is saying, My words shall not pass away. What does this mean? Well, heaven and earth, the scene of all of the misery and consequences of sin, all of that's going to pass. But what's not going to pass is My Word. My words will be true. My words are true. And My words will be seen to be true on that last day. It is the fool who refuses Christ and says, well, look at heaven and earth. It remains. It's 2,000 years since and so on. So what's the big deal? Let's get on and say that was a big mess up. It's what liberal Christians do. They say, well, Christ was wrong on a few things. You know, the main ethic though is commendable. Let's adopt that. We see the same ethic as they say in Gandhi and in Hinduism and in Islam and other such things. Never mind the fact that there are massive differences between the so-called ethics of these uh, forms of religion. But so it is liberal Christians look at these things and say, well, look what remains. Heaven and earth. Well, we say, yes, for now. Let's not overlook this fact that Christ's words have not passed away. And so, though heaven and earth remains for now, we realize that heaven and earth will pass. How foolish for men to make heaven earth. How foolish for men to exaggerate earth and to make it to be what heaven will be. Heaven and earth as we know it shall pass. 
how wise for us to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There are times when siblings are without their parents, and sometimes siblings are the encouragements to siblings and the sources of spiritual good. Other times, as recorded in Scripture, siblings have been the source of temptation, trial, and even persecution. You can imagine in a lesser or less serious situation, you know, one sibling saying, well, mom and dad's not here. Let's go ahead and do what we want to do. You know, they said don't eat this. They're not here right now. Let's go eat it. The other one says, well, you're right. Mom and dad aren't here right now, but they're coming back. You know, they went to the neighbor's house or they went to get something from the store. Or they, you know, they're on a trip, but they are going to come back. So, why would that be wise when he, our parents are going to come back? Similar to Christ's parable in this very book, when he says there's this man who owns much and he commends to his stewards these different things and they must give an account. Well, the same is true for us. We live as Christians, as Christ says, watching and praying. As Peter says, what manner of men ought we to be? growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ. And though the world says, ease up, let up, live a little, we say, you've missed the point. You're on a ship to destruction, whereas we're living a lot because we're living for Christ who's returning. This is why we order our home this way. This is why we prioritize the public worship of God. This is why we love to read His Bible. We love to be with Christians. This is why we set aside all of those other things. Not because necessarily those things are wrong in and of themselves, but because, as Hebrews tells us, we are setting aside sin and the weight that so easily entangles us that we may run the race that is set before us. Doing what? Looking unto Christ, the author and finisher of the faith. That's the whole message here. And so let me ask you, with this most certain day coming, which day will be the wondrous display of the glory of Christ to all creation? He is glorious, is He not? And the angels and the departed saints behold His glory now, but it's veiled from the earth. But on that day, every eye shall behold Him. What a scene it will be. And at that point, every sin you've committed, every excuse you've made, every compromise you've entertained and participated in will have seemed to have been the most foolish choice you've made in spite of the gain you had in this world. And isn't that what Satan tells us? You can have heaven, but you know, ease up and compromise. That only works for people who don't have their eyes open to heaven and the glory of Christ to come. Are you trying to satisfy me with this morsel which can never satisfy and which itself will be shown to be a corruption? Why would I prostitute my soul when Christ is coming in glory for me? He who loved me and gave Himself for me is right now preparing a place for me. And He will come again that I might be with Him where He is. I will not and by His grace I cannot should He sustain me. 
satisfy my soul on so worthless a morsel as that. Well, brethren, as we close, here is something for us to examine. Are we right now ordering our lives, our thoughts, our desires, our finances, our work schedules, our schedules all around? Are we ordering all that is ours and within, as it were, our oversight in light of the last day? Can you look at your use of finances and say, I'm using this for that day? Can you look at the way you use your time and say, I'm doing this in light of the last day? Can you look at what you say no to and say, I say no to that because of the last day. I say yes to this because of the last day. And someone says, that seems too overwhelming. Wait for the last day. And you'll see that it's not. You say, that seems too demanding. Wait to the last day. And you'll see that none of it was too demanding. Wait till you see the glorified Christ. And remember, at that moment, you'll look upon every sin, every compromise, every laziness, everything that you've done contrary to or against His Word and say, I was the fool. And you'll look at everything that was ever done in weakness and yet sincerity. And you'll see, oh, it was still defiled. But that's by God's grace when I was most wise. The world ridiculed. They laughed. I suffered. My finances struggled. This was there. I didn't have the house I wanted. I didn't have the job I could have had. But I had Christ. And now Christ appears in His glory. And what are the words I hear Him say to me? He says, well done. And yet he says it in the audience of the entire universe of angels, of demons, of Christians, of the enemies, of Satan, of all that is. Christ, the Lord of glory, says to His people, one by one, well done. Whereas... Those who live for this world, however respected, however honored, however pleasant, however much pleasure they enjoyed in this life, will hear from His lips, depart from Me, ye cursed. Are you living for that day? Because that day is coming. That day is soon enough to be here. It may not come in your lifetime, but let's not remember or forget that at the resurrection, those who have been dead since Adam will rise up to give an account for every deed done in the body. That includes you and me. And so remember how merciful and gracious Christ is to come and implore us all to remember that day. And what should we do if we discover, I've not lived for that day? Is it not what Christ elsewhere has said? Well, then go to Christ and say, look at all of the wickedness that I've lived for myself. 
And though you will come in judgment to judge the godless and the hypocrite and the deceived and the sinner, yet I come confessing my sin. Today is the day of salvation. That day will be a day of solemn judgment and full display of blessing to the believer as well. This day is that day wherein Christ calls us to flee to Him that He might save us from the wrath to come. You see that Christ tells us of the coming judgment is a testimony of His call to us to come to Him before the judgment. That that day would be the day of deliverance by His grace to His glory and our everlasting good. Would you stand with me for prayer?